This is an ABC podcast. If not at 70% and 80%, then when? Would Australia be closer to reopening if the Prime Minister had not failed his two jobs on vaccine and quarantine? Unfortunately, in the background, actions are still proving that they don't get it. Nobody is telling us exactly what's involved in the plan. Australia seems to have left it far too late to help those who helped us. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing, joining you from Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Frank Kelly from RM Breakfast, joining you from Ngunnawal Country because I've been broadcasting from Parliament House in Canberra all week. PK, if I can just indulge a little, I've been broadcasting, I realise, from this place on and off, mostly on, but um, some off, for nearly three decades. And uh, this is my last day doing it because I finish up on RM Breakfast next week. So it's been a big week for me. Well, soon we're going to be joined here in the Parliament House studio by Laura Tingle, Chief Political Correspondent for 7.30, to talk about about the Morrison government's religious discrimination bill because that is causing some ructions. Is that too strong a word? Maybe some no. tensions within ructions the coalition party room and beyond. And it's not the only division in the ranks, PK. Scott Morrison is facing a real challenge from some of his own senators and lower house MPs over vaccine mandates. Already five coalition senators backed a One Nation bill in the parliament, which was demanding that the Prime Minister override state and territory mandates. Um, it was in the end defeated pretty overwhelmingly, but independent Senator Jackie Lambie had a lot to say to those supporting the One Nation bill on the way through. Being held accountable for your own actions isn't called discrimination. It's called being, you wouldn't believe it, a goddamn bloody adult. That's right as being an adult. It's putting others before yourself. And that's what this country's supposed to be about. There she goes in full flight, Jackie Lambie in the parliament, and she uh, hit that note quite a few times this week. The interesting thing, Pika, I think, about that intervention by Senator Lambie is that in her home state of Tasmania, where the Premier essentially locked out the rest of the country to keep Tasmania safe and where people have rolled up in big numbers for the vaccine, those people, according to Jackie Lambie, are also talking about freedoms, but they're concerned about their freedoms being impinged upon by unvaccinated people being allowed to go into restaurants, go into theatres, that kind of thing, not the other way around. So we haven't seen in Tasmania those angry freedom protests that we've seen in other parts of the country. And of course, you know, the Prime Minister, it's his job to balance both those sentiments in the lead up to the next election as kind of we're in quasi-election mode now, right now, aren't we? Uh, we certainly are. Look, it's interesting to see the way he's um, dealt with this issue. You can feel like he's kind of hedging bets. But when we say straddling both sides, whatever that is, the sides are not actually numerically equal. If you look at the numbers, number of Australians vaccinated and, and you know, any survey around vaccination, Australians are overwhelmingly in favour of vaccination. So I think he's playing with fire here, to be honest, by doing any kind of, um, any messaging to this kind of part of the community that he's anti-vaccination and he's fired up. He, he I think he, he was, he got the tone wrong in relation to the violent protests um, you know, he denounced the violence, but even sort of uh, sympathising with any of the sentiments of the protesters, I think, was overreach and problematic. 
yes, there is some frustration from from some people in the community that they are being forced or risk losing their job because they are being forced in some sort of in some industries to be vaccinated by some state governments, right? And let's be clear here, New South Wales was the first, the coalition government in New South Wales was actually the first to spearhead some of these vaccinations which were mandatory when they went down the road with the teachers and, and then, um, you know, there were lots of shifts around that. But the Prime Minister, he's under pressure from Clive Palmer, from Pauline Hanson, uh, in some of these key marginal seats. If you think about Queensland, for instance, this is a live issue. And he's trying to send a message to those people who are very, very um, angry. And I think they're a small group, but they clearly are a group that's powerful enough that the Prime Minister feels like he needs to send a message to them, um, that, that he's, you know, he understands their concerns. And there's a shift, if you listen to the messaging from all sorts of coalition MPs at the moment, uh, that they're saying, you know, we, we, well, how long can we do mandatory vaccination? They're right. In, even even leading experts are saying, well, you get to get to a point where, yeah. you know, you might need to sh- change tactics. But you need to be careful that in, in perhaps changing tactics because it might be necessary or there has been some medical advice that shows that it's not necessary anymore to, to force people to prove that they're vaccinated, that you don't alienate the majority of Australians... Mm who have done the right thing, as Jackie Lambie so beautifully articulated and powerfully articulated. And I think he is now running a risk that he, he that the message out in the community is that he's perhaps sympathising too much with the other side. Now, they voted against as a government that bill by Pauline Hanson, but five senators across the floor, Fran. Just tell our listeners, Fran, why that's significant. Like five is actually a big deal, right? Is five is a big deal. I mean, anyone crossing the floor is always a big story in this place. Even though under the rules of the coalition, you don't get expelled. As you, you know, in the Labor Party, you pay a big price if you cross the floor against the party line. Not so in the Liberal and National Party. Barnaby Joyce used to do it any number of times before he was uh, a cabinet minister and a and a deputy prime minister. Um, but it is a big deal because it it sort of. Um, well, for a start, the numbers are very finely balanced. And so if it was a significant bill and Labor was also voting against the bill, the government would lose. And if a government loses a, a, a legislative vote, for instance, uh, in, in the parliament, then, you know, there's talk about the government losing control of the parliament. That's more so in the reps than in the Senate. But it just gives an indication that the prime minister doesn't have control of his party room. As we all know, disunity is death in politics. So it has all these ramifications and the messaging is very bad politically for any political leader. So it's a big deal, um, a big deal, even more big deal, perhaps for the prime minister with these, at, at least two of these senators and a couple in the lower house now too, I think, who are crossing the floor are saying that they will not support the government on any significant legislation until he agrees that the Commonwealth will move to override state and territory policies. So this is, you know, a one-nation bill that was never going to get up because the government's not going to back a one-nation bill primarily um, is one thing. But what about if they decide to vote down the government's uh, bill on voter ID, for instance, which the government is making much of? There's a few quite significant bills coming in that the government will hold back if they don't have the numbers. We've already seen, sorry to cut across you, but we've already seen this 
you know, hurt the government. And that's in relation to the Senate inquiry into the ABC. Exactly. Uh, Yeah, with Jared Rennick who um, has been withholding his vote or saying he will, even though it's, he's been a bit kind of all over the shop on it, I think. But on that, in that case, he'd paired his vote, which meant, you know, f- effectively neutralising it, if I can explain it that way, in terms of its impact. He'd paired his vote, um, at sort of taking him out of the equation, which meant that his one vote, which he didn't exercise, meant that there is no inquiry into the complaints mechanism of mm. the ABC that Andrew Bragg wanted because of what he did. He then realised, because he was heavied by, you know, people in the coalition saying, you just sunk our inquiry into the ABC. I'm paraphrasing, but I bet that's what they said. How could you have done that? Because remember, he's he's on the right side of politics. Like, what was he doing? Not attacking the ABC. So he comes back and says, oh, I want to recommit my vote. And no the Senate's way. like... No I way, Jose. You paired. You you wanted to go down that road. So already the government has lost one of the things yeah. it wanted to do because of this action. Yeah, lip reading comes in really handy at these moments when you're watching from above over the Senate and you can just not just imagine, you can actually know what they're saying. Um, that's right, PK. So it, it's a chaos. It's a general aura of chaos. One thing a Prime Minister doesn't want in the run-up to an election campaign is a sense of chaos and that they don't control the parliament. That is not good. But just on that bigger issue, you know, of vaccine mandates and generally the population accepting the need for the for the benefit of the country and protection of their own loved ones and their own jobs and the economy to get vaccinated, I think, you know, long-term, because the Prime Minister struck this freedom slogan weeks before the One Nation bill came to the parliament, he was already preparing to get on this wagon of, you know, don't do government. We're going to, you've had too much of being pushed around by government. You know, people have a right now to, you know, live their lives, have a cup of coffee in Queensland where they're vaccinated or not vaccinated. Longer term, like you said, that will start to resonate more when our vaccination levels are very high and when we've got perhaps treatments in the country that we know are very available and very effective for people who get very sick, so we're not going to have our ICU units overcrowded and people dying in in big numbers. That will change it because ultimately I think, you know, generally people in Australia don't want a two-tier society. We don't want a society where you can go there but you can't go there. But for this moment in a global pandemic, when we see the costs, we look overseas, we see the costs, the stakes are so high, I think for now... This uh, is is not the the general popular position, but it's popular enough with about what seven or eight percent of the of the society who aren't vaccinated at all yet um, that you know to endanger the prime minister as you say on the right flank. It's very very nervous times I've got to say for um, the government. Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. <laughs> Laura Tingle is the Chief Political Correspondent for 7.30 and our guest for the final episode of the year. Welcome to the party room. Hello. Sorry, I'm just putting down my shaken, not stirred martini. Yes, here we are, martinis in hand. It's so nice at this end of the day. Um, Laura, PK and I were just talking about the division in the Federal Coalition over the whole issue of vaccine mandates. Almost 92% of Australians have had at least one dose of the vaccine. So Clive Palmer, Craig Kelly and the Renegade Coalition Senators don't appear to be speaking for the majority in demanding an end to vaccine mandates. Or is that a misreading of this? I mean, a lot of people might be vaccinated, but they could still be angry about having to get the jab to keep their job. And some people are just uncomfortable with governments telling people what to do with their bodies. Is this a rich vein of protest for Clive Palmer, Pauline Hanson and trouble for Scott Morrison? 
Well, there's a, a couple of things. I think we've tended to see it all through the prism of vaccines in particular. Um, and I think, uh, you know, if you look at those big protests in Melbourne, it's not just about vaccines and, and mandates. I think it's about, you know, people actually being really pissed off about, you know, lockdowns and all those sorts of things. So, Lockdowns, job losses, those things? Their lives being buggered up and, you know, having to blame somebody for it. So there's this sort of rich tapestry of people who are angry about a whole range of things. Uh, Without a doubt, they're the people who've got very strong views about uh, not having vaccines. You know, the Clive Palmers and... um, and uh, Craig Kelly's and all all the others are tapping into that, um, and uh, and that is of concern. And it's interesting if you look at vaccination rates across the country; like they might be very high, but if you look at them in, shall we say, some local Queensland government areas, uh, which is of course one of the really fertile grounds for uh, political competition, they're a lot. They're a lot lower than that. I was ha- actually looking at these earlier in the week, and certainly figures of sixty percent are not uncommon, and even lower. Um, I, I can't vouch for them because it's been a long week, but like they're they're noticeably lower. Okay, so you're really slicing the young in there, though, which of course is what these minor parties are really good at. Because on the face of it, you'd think, well, maybe this is a bust for Clive Palmer, for instance, thinking he's going to pick up um, seats on this issue in Queensland because there's such pretty strong support for for the premier Anastasia Palaszczuk in the way. She She's handled the thing altogether. She's got strong support. You know, who are these anti-vaxxers that are going to vote for, for Clive Palmer? But as you say, you zero in on the numbers of local of individual seats and you get a different picture. You, you do. And it is in and it is in those seats that have, you know, often been, you know, that three or four months ago we were saying there was just going to be a few seats in contention uh, in the in the, camp, in the election. Um, now mm. we're looking at, you know, basically a meltdown across the country, you know, with lots of conflicting trends. Um, but uh, certainly it is an issue. But uh, I think both the, the marginal parties, if you like, who are fighting for those vaccine votes, uh, very conscious of how that plays out. And there is this broader issue, which I think without a doubt the PM's been trying to uh, sort of get into as well, which is about people just sort of feeling like they're being pushed around. And sick of it. And being sick of it, yeah. Yeah, and rightly so um, in some places. Obviously, there is a lot of people who have been smashed by by this pandemic. Obviously, that's a lot of the sentiment in parts of Melbourne. What's interesting, though, Laura and I say parts very deliberately, is that there was a view that, oh, this is, you know, this is going to smash Dan Andrews, for instance, in Victoria, where that was playing out. And then the latest polling, and I know we have to be very careful about analysing polling because look what happened at the last election. Um, Yeah, okay. But the latest polling shows that Dan Andrews, for instance, has held up, right? Uh, So could we be perhaps giving too much credence to a noisy minority? Look, I don't think it's a noisy minority, PK. I mean, I think there's a few things happening. I mean, it's certainly the case that I think the revolt against Dan Andrews has been overplayed, you know, in the sense that, yes, there are lots of people who are really grumpy and who have gone to the streets. um, But there's also, as I said, a lot of people who are just, you know, over the lockdowns and all that stuff, it might not even be focused on state leaders. But I think that polling was so fascinating this week because without a doubt, some media organisations have been running really hard on this idea that, you know, Victorians are, you know, angry, mad as hell, whatever, with Dan Andrews. 
And that polling showed that the majority of people think that he's basically been handling it well or, you know, at worst, he's been handling it well, but there are things he could have done better. It might not necessarily translate into them all loving Dan Andrews, but, you know, there is not a, a great backlash against him. I think the issue will be, does it translate into them voting against a Morrison government? Has that line, you know, Scott Morrison, the, the Prime Minister for New South Wales, has it has it really taken hold there? Um, Laura, there's a lot going on in this last couple of sitting weeks but for the end of the year. Uh, Scott Morrison has finally been able to stand and deliver his religious discrimination bill in the Parliament. Uh, that legislation seeks to secure extra protections from state discrimination laws, override um, protections that exist right now for people. It's a bit of a, a, a passion project, I suppose, for the mm. Prime Minister. He's making that clear. It, but but what is this bill? Is it a shield or is it a sword, to quote the Prime Minister? Well, I was thinking about this today, Fran. Wasn't it originally supposed to be a religious freedoms bill? Yes. When, when did it, you know, like suddenly Freedom. you're going... When did it go from being a religious freedom bill to a religious discrimination bill? It's now... Okay, so talk about that difference. Well, uh, for the Conservatives, uh, you'll have Conservatives say, we are now looking at a bill that's stopping us being discriminated against for our view, against our views, Mm. instead of being allowed to freely express our views. Um, Now, you know, the the contentious bit of that, I suppose, would be as an example, but it's complicated because they've changed the um, previous provisions on this, but Israel Folau, is it about that he um, should be entitled to express his views, uh, you know, uh, which were very controversial at the time, or is it that he can't be discriminated against for expressing his views? Now, for a lot of conservatives, they were pinning their their faith, shall we say, they, they were they were under the impression that this was going to be about allowing them to be free to express their views. And I think this is a really interesting change in the way the debate's being played out. This The Israel Folau clause is gone, mm. but there is another clause, Statement of Belief, which yeah. does something very similar. It yeah, does it's very mean, similar. It does mean, as far as I understand it, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, that people can are free to express their views based on their religious beliefs, even if it um, criticises and discriminates, ends up discriminating or being discriminatory against someone else's. Now, there's, I've, I've tried to sort of probe this with different ministers, and uh, and some people say, and some of them say, well, it's, it can be a statement of your view, but it can't be followed through by action, mm. and there is a qualifier. You know, you're not supposed to intimidate, harass, um, offend, I think. Um, So there's those qualifications. But it's definitely a right to go further, I think, or to state specifically that you can use discriminatory words, Mm. if not actions, against someone if you believe that's reflecting your strong beliefs. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we we don't really... We really haven't had a really good chance to have a look through all of the... the, um, nuances of this. Uh, Look, my basic problem with this bill is that I don't think it is ever going to see the light of day in this parliament. Don't you? No, no, not at all. Really? It went through through the party room on the basis that it would go to a Senate committee. Um, Now, I reckon the chances of them getting around to legislating this, you know, I mean, we're now at the situation where people are saying we might only come back for two weeks next year. Mm-hmm. Now, even if we come back for a lot longer than that, is this something, you know, I mean, OK, you can say this was, you know, this is one of those issues that from a p- position of strength, the Prime Minister might want to 
uh, engage in this debate on the even of election campaign. I'm really wondering, given the absolutely catastrophically bad week he has had, is he really, really wanting to go into a, an, a, you know, a, a war in the trenches about this? Now, he's gone into the chamber this morning. He's now got the tape of him saying, you know, this is very passionate, personal issue for me, you know, saying all the, the right things for that constituency that he wants to hear um, him saying that. But I'm sorry, I'm a cynic. I just, I just really doubt whether we will see the see this get into legislation before this parliament rises. Yeah, I think I think you're right, and the fact that there is still such bitter division, and there is on this, incredibly bitter. Yeah, with with these moderates um, raising concerns about why, for instance, gay teachers and gay students are yet to be protected, despite the fact that the prime minister promised to do it now, uh, what years ago, and never actually went, you know, actually made it happen. That I think is just just demonstrates that, you know, they're not going to just take this unless the Prime Minister can deliver that at the same time. They're not going to just take it. And does he want to have that fight at the election? I don't think well, so. He's well, not going to be able to deliver that at the same time. That's a completely different piece of law and that's still being worked on. Yeah. I mean, there's been no urgency around this. That's part of it, isn't it? Well, <laughs> it's urgency on the Morrison timetable. But apart from anything else, it's not just moderates versus conservatives. Now it's seats versus seats. I mean... You've got all these all these moderates are basically the ones who are now under threat from independence and under serious threat from independence. Um, and look at Dave Sharma. I mean, that promise from Scott Morrison was made in the Wentworth by-election in 2018. Mm. If we go to an, another election without that being fulfilled, that's three elections he has to defend yeah. in what is... He's only got a small margin and he's got a pretty star-studded independent now running against Absolutely. Death. Allegra Spender, you know, uh, the, of the Spender dynasty, Carla Zampatti's beloved daughter, um, you know, it's... I mean, yeah, I, there is so much stacked against um, them being able to do this. Yeah, absolutely. Look, you mentioned how much is stacked against them and whether the Prime Minister is going to have the appetite to have this fight. So let's go to the other issues for him. The issue of truthfulness has really dogged Scott Morrison in the last few weeks, but really acutely this week in question time. It's become a talking point again. And after Labor MP Fiona Phillips asked Scott Morrison why, when her electorate was burning in the black summer bushfires, his office told journalists he wasn't on holiday in Hawaii. Morrison said he'd texted Anthony Albanese advising him that he and his family were on their way to Hawaii. But Anthony Albanese says, actually, that's not the case. The Prime Minister did text me saying he was going on leave. He did not tell me where he was going. He said he was going with his family. I kept that text message confidential, as you do with private text messages between private phones. But at no stage did he tell me where he was going. And not long after, Scott Morrison had to return to Parliament to correct the record. When I was referring to he knew where I was going and was fully aware I was travelling with my family, what I meant was that we were going on leave together. I know I didn't tell him where we were going because, Mr Speaker, that is a private matter where members take leave and I know I didn't tell him the destination, nor would I, nor would he expect me to have told him where he was going. Okay, so Laura, let's just talk about this. Oh, yes, let's. Yeah, that was a real own goal by the Prime Minister, but it was an own goal in a couple of own goals where he got himself in a pickle about his truthfulness. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, it was all sort of all on the all on the one day and it was all there for everybody to see 
all in succinct enough bits that it could be run as grabs on the uh, TV news and about the issue which first, um, I was about to say ignited, but that sounds tasteless, um, that that first made people erupt about Scott Morrison, you know, the whole bushfires Hawaii debacle. uh, I don't hold a hose, mate. uh, yeah. On it went. Yeah. Uh, so, mm. I mean, we were talking to 7.30, uh, we were talking to Tony Mitchell, more the focus group guy, um, earlier in the week uh, about the fact that this, uh, you know, the, the lie from the Shire thing has obviously been going around for a long time on social media. But he's saying, look, uh, Emmanuel Macron has changed the sort of pace of all of that. It is now just an entrenched thing where if you say to a, a focus group, Scott Morrison, you know, at least two or three of them will say, oh, well, well, he's a liar. You can't believe anything he says. You know, he's become Hilaire Billock's Matilda, for those of us who remember the cautionary tales. Um, and, And then to prove that point, he's come back into the parliament for the first time since the disastrous trip to Glasgow and Rome, since Macron uh, called him a liar, since Malcolm Turnbull called him a liar, and the first day he he does this. It's it's just, you know, almost incomprehensibly bad politics. So, given that, given what the polls are showing, given this whole... Labor's not going to ease up on the trustworthiness. They've Mm. been pushing this button for ages, and Macron and then Turnbull and then others have just sort of... Um, you know, put the the mm. wind under it. Um, what does he do? And let me ask you that in a broader context. There's next week is the last sitting week for this year, potentially, possibly before an election. What does he need to do in the next week of Parliament to get himself sort of back and centred onto a onto an, a steady footing to go out into election mode? And the same cuts for Anthony Albanese. What what do they both sides need to achieve in this next week? Do you think? Mm. Well, I, I think most. Most people, uh, you know, strategists, as they say, would say that um, the the damage is done in a way to uh, Scott Morrison. They make the comparisons with 2004. And I remember I wrote a guffaw, guffaw piece when when John Howard said, you know, uh, the 2004 election was about who you trusted. And, you know, what was the problem there? Well, people thought... John Howard had lied about things like children overboard, but they trusted him to run the economy Mm. and the country well. I think that Scott Morrison's problem is that it's not that clear cut that people trust him to be running the government well, because we've had so many examples. You know, we've got all these uh, allegations of corruption over rorts. Um, We've got the sort of uh, things like uh, JobKeeper, $20 billion of waste, you know, almost a trillion dollars of debt, all the sort of sort of the usual things that protect the coalition despite everything about the economy running well. The coalition thought it was going to be picking up seats in Western Sydney, you know, a few months ago. And now, you know, the white hot heat against uh, the coalition, you know, the fact that Scott Morrison is out um, campaigning in Lindsay, you know, I mean, they have got really big problems on the credibility of their management of the economy and of the pandemic. Uh, and uh, so, but he's got to try to get the conversation onto that. Now, the thing onto I, the economy, onto the economy, and you know, is and a set brackets, you know, implicit message are people frightened or you know, nervous about Anthony Albanese. Now, Anthony Albanese's problem is that the, the, the brawl for the last 18 months has been between uh, Scott Morrison and the premiers, pretty hard to get any oxygen. Yeah. So he's he's now been given this opportunity because everybody's going, 
it's all about Scott Morrison or, you know, gee, who is this guy? Do we really want to, you know, is he, is he really a viable option? That look makes people look at the alternative. So Anthony Albanese has to make the most of not just attacking Scott Morrison because he sort of seems to be just doing that all by himself, but sort of starting to come out with things like, and Labor's strategy is to say, um, you know, Scott Morrison always late to the party. We're going to clean things up. Classic example, the NBN policy last week where uh, they came out and said, look, you know, they they gave us all this hell about the NBN, said they were going to do it cheaper. Turns out it's it's a dud. Once again, in a lot of the electorates they want to win, um, you know, we, we haven't heard a lot about it, but broadband speeds are still terrible. And the government has itself has said we're going to have to do stuff to fix it up. So Labor's coming along saying, well, yeah, we're going to do it because we should have, you know, you should have let us do it the first time. And it's worth reminding ourselves, I suppose, as we look towards an election, we're not sure when it's going to be, but it will be within the next few months. You know, Labor's got a job ahead of it. It's got to win eight mm. seats if it wants to win government, I think it is. The government's got a, um, it's only got a buffer of one, so it can't afford to lose any. You know, we may be, next time we're talking here in the podium, talking about hung parliaments. So I think we're in that sort of territory, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. I think we're talking about hung parliaments and a government that is now having to defend a massive number of seats that it never thought it would defend, uh, particularly in Victoria. I mean, people talk about lots of seats lost in WA. I always am a bit sceptical mm. about that. But, you know, th- and they're in trouble in a lot of seats in New-, in New South Wales as well. And the party is bitterly divided in New South Wales. And, uh, and, and that's going to affect their campaigning capacities. Laura Tingle, you are always so good. Thank you so much for coming on the party room. Well, thank you. I try not to be good, but that's another story. <laughs> that's right. Well, uh, on that note, let's grab our martinis and go. Laura, thank you. Nice to talk to you both. Have a great end of 2021. And Fran, what can I say? But, you know, we will all miss you in the mornings. I'll miss you all in the mornings too, but that's because I'll be snoozing, I hope. Yeah. Thanks, Laura. Sleep well. <laughs> See ya. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for question time. This week's question comes from Sean, and Sean has a doozy for us. He writes, just a suggestion for your final show, and this is our final party room. We'll be back together, yes, together uh, next year. Maybe you could give out some informal awards to politicians and people in the arena. Okay, Sean. Great idea, Sean. Good, good one, Sean. It was actually a really good idea. Sean has included some categories for us. And in fact, we have exclusively gone with Sean's ideas because Sean has come up with some good ideas. Um, so we'll answer them one at a time. And we've kind of come to this together. We've already, you know, we've caucused, haven't we? Fran, we have. We have. All right. The first one is straight talker. Fran, take it away. Lay down, Mazea. You've already heard her in the party room today. Jackie Lambie, she has been straight talking uh, uphill and down Dale all this week in the Parliament. I'm here in Parliament House in Canberra. I had her in my studio too and she did some straight talking there. And uh, really, she never does anything but, but straight talk and I think she wins this hand down. We both think that. Yeah, we definitely do. All right, next one is? Come in spinner. PK, oh. what have you got? That's easy, and we agree on this one too, because we agree on everything, because we practised. Look, it's kind of the opposite of the previous category in many ways. Someone who can spin their way out of anything, Barnaby Joyce, the Deputy Prime Minister, the Nationals leader. I'll give you an example. It's the way he positioned on net zero emissions by 2050. Uh, Apparently the Nationals were going to go in hard, and we were hearing right to the 11th hour that they were going to drive a hard bargain 
When you looked at the end result, the coalition signed up to net zero emissions by 2050. But Barnaby Joyce, Fran, sold it as a fantastic win for the Nationals. The Nationals had won so much. We kind of didn't even find out much of the deal itself. Uh, we found out that Keith Pitt had been elevated back into the cabinet. But really, ultimately, um, yes, he clearly got some wins along the way in the interim targets. But, whoa, was that a spin job, right? That was a spin job because he also let it be known that he actually voted against it in the party room. So he's claiming the victory and he's claiming uh, proudly as a badge of honour he was on the losing side of that vote. So that is spin as far as I can see. <laughs> that's that's spinorama. All right. Best speech, Fran. Uh, best speech, I think my our view is, hands down, this goes to Grace Tame, Australian of the Year. Grace Tame, has, she gave an amazing speech when she accepted that award back in January and everyone sort of sat up and took notice because she is, she's a straight talker too, but it's uh, from lived experience, it's passionate. She's a change agent, that is for sure. She gave a speech, she was invited to the National Press Club in Canberra earlier in the year. It's the first time I've seen a standing ovation given to anyone in the National Press Club club. Grace Tame set that room alight and uh, she definitely hands down winner of this. Yeah, she's just so powerful when she yeah. speaks and brave and I yeah. just, I, she's I just a warrior. think she's been one of the most powerful Australians of the year we've seen. Yeah, I agree. She's an absolute warrior and a star. Speaking of stars, the next category, rising star, PK. Yeah, and we've decided, like, we're not going to just choose one. We've decided to choose two here and to be bipartisan because we're entering a political election year. Uh, yes, we concede many independents, minor parties, lots of people will be running in the election, but there are two major parties, and so we've chosen one from each. For the Liberal Party, we've chosen Fiona Martin. She uh, holds the seat of Reid. And she is a psychologist. She's got lots of um, expertise on things like autism spectrum disorder as well. She's a really actually interesting person. And some of her contributions, I've just been watching her closely. I've got to, the chance to speak to her on my shows. She's, she's, for instance, just been at the helm of a big inquiry into mental health in the country. And some of the recommendations are really interesting. And also, she, she said to me that rising mental health issues we're seeing are clearly because of the pandemic um, and also because of climate change and anxiety, she said. Mm. She's really, you know, not afraid to kind of say what she's observing and to call for things. I think watch that space. And it's obviously an important seat for the Liberals to retain as well. It'll be interesting to see how she goes. The other one is, and she's a bit more senior really in the ranks, but this is for the Labor Party and it's Claire O'Neill. Now, she's kind of rising star. She's midway through rising, if you like. Well, she, she's on the front bench already, but um, I think the reason we gave her this uh, prize was because within the party, people say, watch Claire O'Neill. Within the Labor Party party room, people say, watch Claire O'Neill. So she's considered uh, pretty hefty, I think, and she showed mm. really early on in her career, I think she was a, a front bencher or just off the front bench, that she could really mount an economic argument and she was prepared to go out in the wake of the election loss sort of with some pretty, uh, what could be considered risky um, or unorthodox analysis of Labor Party and who they should be representing and talking to. So uh, I think that's why we've given her the gig. Yeah, that's right. And she's talked about, just to be blunt, as a sort of future uh, Labor Prime Minister. And I think we don't talk enough about future 
prime ministers who are women, full stop, Fran. And that worries me immensely about, you know, um, the pipeline. Um, and we should have those pipelines on both sides of politics. We cannot always be represented only by men. Um, in terms of fall from grace, oh, this was a no-brainer, wasn't it? It was a lay-down mazir. Christian Porter started off the political year as the minister for sort of everything, it seemed to be. I mean, he was the attorney general. He was the industrial relations minister. He was the leader of the government in the House. And uh, which meant he was a very prominent role, and of, now he is uh, on the back bench. And there's even talk and suggestion that he won't run again at the next election. So this is, you know, he's ha- he had he faced scandal, was accused, um, uh, you know, alleged sexual assault as a young man, something he vigorously denied. Um, but th- then there was a number of uh, issues that arose for him. One of them being the. Um, Blind, blind trust, trust, the blind trust that he used to pay uh, for his some of his legal bills in his arguments with the ABC through the years. So, you know, generally he has been busted down to private, basically. Busted down. Uh, so, yeah, uh, that was obvious. Look, Fran... I just want to say that this is our last podcast of the year, which we've said a few times, but we will be back. And it's really important that we're back next year for the party room together. Um, Yes, you are about to say goodbye to RM Breakfast, but you are not saying goodbye to politics and your... Uh, you know, your heft in politics is very important. You are a leader. You know so much. Your brain is enormous. So we need to keep your brain um, providing the audience the information that I think they love to come to us for. So we'll be back together doing the party room next year. We'll we'll tell you what date it is. We'll, we'll settle on that soon. Uh, and we hope everyone has a fantastic Christmas and summer break. I hope it's not traumatic. I know the last couple of years have been very hard and that everyone can refresh and kind of have a clear mind so that they can really assess what's happening in our country next year. Yeah, it's going to be an important year politically, but I think it's going to be a really important summer for everyone, as you said, PK, a really tough couple of years on a range of fronts. So I just want to say, have a great summer. Fran, I'm going to miss you, but thank God I get to hang out with you again next year. See ya. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.